You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. Today I am joined by Mr. George Kern, the CEO of Breitling Watches. Hey George. Good morning, Ariel. Or good afternoon. Yeah, it's it's evening for me, but I'm a night person, and you know this about me. I keep hours just for uh, the Swiss watch industry so that I can be awake and ready to chat during your day, which I which is great because it allows me to have a relationship from this far away. Because I am very far, right? Uh, yes, you're very far, and I'm sure you're reading uh, the time up from a Breitling watch. <laughs> yes, I have the uh, the one of the watches here that the the endurance endurance pro. And such a cool watch you came out with. You know, it's an entry-level price, carbon case, lightweight, but so much fun. Now, you seem to have a little bit of a magic touch when it comes to knowing some of the products that people want. And nobody really seems to talk about this, but I've always been curious. Where do you think you get your sort of magic touch? Because you really seem to know what the consumer wants at any given time. I think I made uh, many mistakes over my last uh, 25 years. Um, I'm trying not to repeat them with Breitling. Uh, That's one thing. I think what is very important, and I mentioned that to my colleagues also, you have to go through life with open eyes. You have to look uh, what seems to be in trend, what the automotive industry is doing, what the fashion industry is doing. And the last thing is you have to trust your stomach feeling. Um, What could be uh, a good uh, thing to initiate um, during the COVID uh, pandemic or post-COVID? What you think you you um, um, you know what might work with the consumer? And at the end of the day, I'm not doing anything which I don't like. So whatever you see. is something I'm wearing myself uh, and which I like and which I hope many people like. You might not like everything we do at Breitling, but you like at least one of the products. And if we achieve this, I think we uh, we will be very successful uh, for uh, not only today, but also for the future. Now, I want to point out something you said that is really important. You said you go with your gut instinct, which is opposed to having a a data-driven decision, as everyone likes to say today. And I have found through my study of the the modern watch industry's great CEOs, which I consider you among them, all of you have one thing in common, and that is you you started from a young age in the watch industry. You, You were persistently in the watch industry for a long time. You saw a lot of mistakes and successes, and you developed a an instinct, as you said, a gut instinct, for what to do and not to do. There's no data that you can ever really look at to justify the decision. You just have to have, uh, you have to be that veteran that knows what's going to happen in battle. And only these these men and women that have developed this maturity and this experience seem to have what it takes. Would you agree or disagree? No, I think um, I uh, I would agree. In the luxury industry, you create needs. Uh, you don't respond to needs. I was in the fast-moving consumer goods uh, when I started my career at Kraft General Foods, and we responded to needs, um, you know, to, to products. Uh, we, we, we fine-tuned products which existed already, 
like coffee, like cheese, etc. We responded to a need here in the luxury industry. You create stuff which basically nobody needs, but everybody wants. And uh, this is the, the beauty of our industry. Uh, creating products uh, nobody thought about in you know um, uh, previously, and suddenly everybody wants it because for some reason you you hit uh, the the nail uh, of the society or of the needs of of uh, these consumers. Um, and this is is what we are we are trying uh, we are trying to do with with our portfolio of uh, of products. And and um, and yes, lots of it is intuitive, um, stomach feeling, um, and um, and you cannot test it beforehand before really launching it. And for instance, when we launched the pistachio green dial, I mean nobody had these these colors. Or when we indeed launched the endurance, um, nobody was expecting us to launch that product. And um, it has been all all of this has been a phenomenal success. Yeah, I, I love that you're able to do that. Just make the watches you want. Now, why is it that? The watch industry at the same time seems to uh, so almost systemically have this sort of data-driven, old-style, factory-driven approach when what you said is true. You have to create things that nobody knew they wanted, now they want it. Yet this seems to be very difficult to do. Why, why is that? I think you, you have to put creative uh, minds at the head of, of brands. And not accountants, and not um, uh, lawyers, and not production guys. It's it's a creative um, it's a creative job, and um, and uh, in in many cases, um, people you know want to save the bottom line or believe that in 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 cutting costs you can build a brand. Um, you build a brand in creating a dream. You create a brand in uh, creating beautiful designs. You create a brand in telling stories. You create a brand uh, in creating emotions and not in cutting costs. And um, and if you're capable to do this, um, then you you will run a successful company. Um, and 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 yeah, and that's that's the point. Um, and you see it by the way in any of these luxury companies um, that dominated by the creativity of it and not by the financial director behind it. Karl Lagerfeld, you know, he did what he wanted to do and he was a genius. Tom Ford is a genius. Um, these companies are not run by CFOs. Right. That, I mean, that's, and that's absolutely, I think, a logic that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm so glad you're saying it. So, okay, so amongst the creative team, What's the most essential job? Is it the creative director, the art director, amongst your sort of generals of creative? What's the one job title that you know every company just has to have that? Uh, let me try to explain um, what I like with my marketing director and with my creative director. Okay, um, and it's 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 very different. And by the way, creative people. You have different types of creativity. I was lucky enough, for instance, in my previous life to, to work with uh, Ralph Lauren. 
Yeah. And uh, I've been working with him for one year. It's somebody I admire a lot. Uh, but he's not a designer. Ralph is somebody who has uh, a phenomenal idea in mind, uh, who can express the idea with his incredible creative mind. And then somebody is designing it. Okay. Uh, you have other people who are, who are designing right from the beginning. Um, and this is what I also have in the company. You have people who are extremely creative, uh, but who are not designers. And then you have people who design, but even with designers, you have different type of people. I have a designer at Breitling, um, Sylvain, who, who, who has a huge, uh, advantage. First of all, he's listening to what I'm saying. He understands the strategy. Um, but he's not implementing one-to-one what I'm telling him. He's really adding value to the original idea. Meaning, uh, when we talk about a product, when I explain him what I have in mind, he says, okay, that's great. What I would do though, or what I would add though, is this and that. So there's a clear added value and actually, the product I have in mind, he's making it much, much, much nicer and better than uh, just implementing what I'm saying. And it's the same thing with my marketing director. He understands, you know, the, when we did the squat campaign uh, or when we do the, the boutiques, you know, in our industrial style. So these were the the ideas, but they have the quality, the immense quality to not only embracing the idea, but to make it much better. Um, and that makes a difference between a good marketing director or a good designer and a very good marketing director and a very good designer taking an idea, but making it much better than the original idea. So are, are you trying to imply that too many people in those roles are maybe robotic, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is what I've experienced over 25 years um, that, you know, what we, we uh, I'm, you know, and, and it's exactly what I said. I mean, that makes a difference between a robotic answer to a brief or uh, an added value to a brief. You know, I mean, I'm laughing because we've all seen that the robotic briefs. It's like I thought you called yourself an artist. What is this? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I give you an anecdote. Many years back, ten years back, I made a speech uh, in front of I don't know, one thousand marketing directors in uh, in Switzerland. You know, all the companies were there and asked them. Started the first question. I said who believe in this room that he or she is a creative person. And you had basically 1000 people raising the hand. Really? And I said, probably there's one or two guys or girls who are really creative in this room. And then I said, not, not very many, not very many. Yeah. Because I mean, we all play soccer, right? We all play. I mean, in, in Europe, we play football or whatever, but who plays right. like Messi? I mean, <laughs> Uh, nobody and everybody knows how they play, but either you have the talent or you don't either you're a good player or you're a brilliant player. 
And that makes a difference of, um, you know, uh, somebody who is average and somebody who is outstanding. And, and that talent is, is something, uh, we, we are very lucky to have now at Breitling, both in marketing and in, uh, in our product design. So let me play the devil's advocate here for one moment. I, I do not disagree with you at all, but I will say this. Maybe something about the corporate environment, especially in the Swiss watch industry, thwarts people that are re real creatives, meaning that there would be more real creativity if more real creatives worked there, but something about that job structure is really unfriendly to the right types of people. I fully agree. I fully what can, agree. What can, what can be changed about that, and, and how, how do we fix that core problem? Um, well, it, it, it's a cultural issue. You're, you're totally right. And you have, um, um, uh, and culture, as you know, is top down. It's not, it's not something which is bottom up. If, if top down, you, you limit your teams, you, you put them in a prison, you frame them, uh, their creativity will not be uh, able to, to, uh, fully unleash. And, uh, and if you have um, a decentralized uh, corporation where um, management and the culture of the company can, is, is free without being framed, you will be much more successful than when you have a centralized, organized uh, structure, which um, might be restrictive. So... There's just needs to be a, a shift in the culture, and uh, it's unclear how that's going to happen. But without a real shift, this problem is going to persist, and it's going to allow you know people like yourself that figured it out to just really thrive in in, in an environment with not too much competition. Yes, I mean you have, uh, uh, um, and and we see it now in in especially in this crisis how 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 much better independent companies are performing versus um, the big groups. I'm not it's not even that. funny. It's like they can't even, it's maybe they're slow. It's, it's, from my perspective, what we see is massive inactivity. They talk a lot. They do almost nothing. Um, yes, I, I think there are many, many elements um, in that. Uh, it's a cultural issue, is a size issue, issue. Um, perhaps, you know, not, size doesn't make a difference. It's speed which makes a difference uh, in, in, in our business. Um, it's intellectual freedom, it's creativity, it's a creative freedom. Um, perhaps it's also the fact that we at Brighton, we are shareholders. Funnily enough, we take, or I take many more risks, even if I have my whole money in this company, then I would have taken um, uh, in, in a group. Uh, where I was just an employee, um, and and uh, but it's the same for all my team. I mean, you know, we are all invested in this company, or the senior management team, and everybody's taking more risks. Uh, we we have much more fun. <laughs> we are quicker. Um, we are certainly more aggressive, um, even though we risk much more. So in a way, it's it's a contradiction. Um, but uh, we we don't want to save a situation. We don't want to save our jobs. We wanna we want to move forward, and um, and it's also part of the culture. You know how do you <clears throat> how do you involve your colleagues uh, in the business? How do you create an entrepreneurial 
uh, environment um, and, um, and, uh, and, and, and make your company successful. But look at anybody who created a company from, from Amazon to Tesla to, to Google to, I mean, all these, all these companies were very small and were built by entrepreneurs, but also in the luxury industry. Um, when you look at the beginnings of Chanel, et cetera, et cetera, these were designers, entrepreneurs, um, and only with time they were integrated in, um, in, into big groups or became right. big groups. So what I'm hearing is that there's something about being a little bit hungry that all artists need as inspiration and, and motivation, that when there's too much complacency, you don't make the art that you need to make to succeed as a luxury brand. Yes, I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, on the other side, and there are many examples that um, um, brands cannot succeed in a more corporate uh, environment. I can give you many examples of companies doing extremely well in a corporate uh, um, environment, but then I'm sure that this is due to the strengths of that specific CEO, you know, that, that uh, backbone he might have. And uh, again, the top-down culture of that group, um, uh, which will allow that specific brand to, to further develop. Um, it's, it's all a question uh, of culture. Um, and, and I would say intellectual freedom if you have the right CEO, of course, if you don't have the right CEO, then you have a major problem. <laughs> okay, so what makes you the right CEO? Because you seem to be thriving in this current position, um, you know, with a lot, what seems like a lot of autonomy. Um, people would say that Breitling is in a good position right now. Products are exciting. You seem to be having a good time. What, what sort of makes you the right man for this right role right now? Uh, you should ask uh, other people to respond. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but I think um, to be successful, you need to have a couple of um, um, to, to you know to have a, a couple of of things uh, in the right place. So first of all, I mean, I say this uh, because I really believe in it. It's it's not a it's not a BS statement. What I'm going to do now. So you right, you need the right team. I never had such a strong team than I have today at Breitling, ever, in my whole career. I was the best people. Perhaps I could get them because, again, they, they, they were able to invest in the company. Okay? I don't know, but we have, a phenomenal, uh, we have a phenomenal team. Second, you have to create that culture where you certainly don't micromanage people, where you have to give because these people are entrepreneurs, you give them freedom. You, you have on the other side to, um, to give the impulses and to give the direction and a clear um, red line in the, uh, creative, um, in the creative context of this company. Where do you want to go with this company and how do you implement it? And uh, talking about implementation, you need the, the right, I would say, not only team, but uh, understanding on how to implement it right. So you might, strategy without implementation is nothing. 
and implementation without strategy is also nothing. You might have a good plan, but if you don't fulfill it in the right way, it's useless. And just shooting left and right without a clear vision also doesn't lead to anything. People understand, uh, uh, misunderstand, you know, strategy, you define the strategy once. We defined it three years ago or three and a half years ago. Since three and a half years, we're implementing and we're looking for excellence. Uh, it's in search of excellence. Um, um, and, and, and you need, you need, especially in the luxury industry, you need that sensitivity and that, uh, perfection, uh, to make, to make sure that all you have in mind is implemented in the right way. And excellence has always sold very well. Like companies that focus on this, and there are a few of them out there, they they seem to be like recession-proof. Like they just have persistent appeal because they're they're doing the best of the best, right? Absolutely. And and that's probably the only company I would mention by name. And I never mention companies when I when I talk. So nobody feels uh um um, you know, offended, yeah, le- left out, <laughs> left out. But for me, if, 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 uh, still, I would like to mention Rolex, which is the ultimate example of excellence, uh, since yeah. 30, 40 years in, in, in terms of quality, in terms of marketing, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of distribution. Um, this is the ultimate example of, how to be consistent in searching for quality and, and, um, and, and for decades. I mean, we're talking here about decades of perfection of, um, of brilliant management and, and, and brilliant execution. So, uh, chapeau to them. I mean, the product that Rolex comes out with is, is phenomenally obsessive and it's somewhat rewarding that we can live in a society where there are companies that can have the luxury to focus on such minor details. It's, it's, um, I've always sort of thought of Rolex as one of the wonders of the world in that regard. No, I agree with you. It's, um, it's an incredible role model in the watch industry. And ironically, you can't learn everything from following Rolex, but it really wouldn't be the industry it is without Rolex. I've always wondered, especially, you know, marketing, you're someone that, that understands, how to how to use marketing and, and empower and allow it to empower you. How important marketing has been for Rolex, um, and in the watch industry, the the relationship with marketing today is is it's an interesting struggle. Um, is it that the watch industry cannot afford the marketing it needs, or is it the watch industry simply doesn't want to admit that how much it costs? Um, I don't think it's about money. Um, really? Of course, it's always at at the end of the day. Uh, you you cannot buy success with money and with marketing. I mean, this doesn't work. It's not just that's ju- it's not just marketing. That's for sure. So, and and um, and you can be highly successful um, and coming from nowhere with no marketing and be high, high uh, successful. If you don't mind, I'm going to. <laughs> To give another brand name of, of a friend of mine, which is Richamil. So he started from zero um, and and created something phenomenal uh, because of the strategy, because of the product, without 
certainly not at the beginning, investing um, uh, these amount of money. I think the difficulty in marketing is a, is a at a total different level. The difficulty is first of all to have a sense of the society. What is going on in the world? What is relevant for the consumers uh, at this moment in time? And for instance, today, think that different things which are relevant than one year ago. Right. The the environment has totally changed. Um, what was luxury uh, 20, 30 years ago? What is luxury today and what will be neo-luxury tomorrow? And then the next, so you have to ask yourself these questions. And then the next question is the next question is how do, do I implement um, these? What you know what you know and what you believe will happen and how do you express it and how do you brief your teams in expressing what you believe will be or what is new luxury or will be neo luxury in the future. And I think that's a difficulty. And, um, and today I'm, I'm surprised um, that some brands are doing marketing like 20 or 25 years ago and believe it's the right way of doing. And for sure, um, today, and that's a fundamental change versus uh, uh, a couple of years ago, you have you see time everywhere on your iPhone, on your computer, etc., etc. I mean, I wonder who is buying a watch today to read time. You buy watches <laughs> today for totally different reasons. Oh yeah, um, and um, and I remember 25 years ago when I joined the company, the the the, the watch industry, everything was a kind of top-down uh, market uh, marketing approach. Okay, movement, um, uh, brand, uh, marketing, um, and and everything was around the the you know the the technical innovation. The watchmaking part of it uh, today it's totally it's totally different. The watchmaking part of it is a conditio sine qua non. I mean, the quality of a product, <laughs> the innovation, is a conditio sine qua non. Yeah. Um, and and you you have to have a much more top down approach, meaning what is a society, what is happening, what is a perception towards luxury, um, and um, and what dream, what story are you telling to your um to your consumer and how you can engage with the consumer uh because when you buy a product you first buy a brand right um you you're either an armani woman or you're a versace woman two two different brands you're a bmw driver or a mercedes driver you first decide the brand then you decide on the model okay do i want a bmw5 or do i want an e-class and then you decide on the engine. Okay, do I want diesel? Do I want, I don't know, uh, uh, V4 or V5 or V6, sorry. Uh, what do I want? This is the process and not the other way around. And it's the same for the watches. You buy a brand, you're attracted by a brand, and then you look if it, you, you find something nice, and then you define uh, the movement or what you want, you want this, you want a small complication, a big complication, a chrono, an automatic whatsoever. Um, but you believe that at that price point, the quality is there, right? 
yeah. and you're not asking, uh, you know, when you buy a Kelly bag, you're not asking uh, about the quality of the leather when you buy that bag. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, it, it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, of course, and you and I know this, but we're laughing because there are brands that are still selling as though the consumer is demanding better and better movements, which is a, a misunderstanding at, at best. In terms of moves, I believe that anyway, you, it's like in the car industry, you have a kind of new normal coming uh, or which is already in place and the leading brands are showing the way. Uh, and what is a new movement? It's, it's, it's five years of guarantee, is some functions which might be interesting, like, like uh, being anti-magnetic or having you know, a big date or having a second time zone. It's like a car, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, somebody created a new normal. You had your, your radio in the car, you had your airbag in the car, you had whatever. I mean, it, it's a new normal. And, yeah, and this yeah. new normal, which didn't exist in the car industry and which didn't exist probably five, 10, uh, 15 years in the watch industry is now here and there. And we are all used to it. But again, today, all these aspects, the quality, uh, the service, uh, the customer service, the after-sales service, all these are, as I said, conditio sine qua non of even surviving in this industry. It's given consumers expecting this from you, but they're not buying that from you. They buy, they buy you for other reasons. No, it's 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 true. Does the resilience of the wristwatch as a desirable product sometimes impress you? I mean, I love watches, but I'm genuinely impressed that this type of object remains as in in demand with consumers across many different types of demographics. Like, isn't it impressive that these things are so durable in their appeal? Uh, yes, it is um, because. Today, it um, it reflects or it it corresponds and answers to another request of the consumer. As I said, you don't buy a watch to read time. Today, a traditional watch, an analog watch, uh, is about beauty, is about the brand, is about uh, craftsmanship, it's about the story of the emotions created around that product it's not it's not a function it's not a function uh or if there is a function a tool beyond or a minute repeater whatsoever it's an illustration of some some something you want to express and this is it's a piece of art it's like a painting it's like a um it's like a sculpture um and you buy this because of your beauty because we are um in French, we say Epicurean. We love luxury. We love to enjoy life. We are we are mm -hmm. not robots, and there's no rational reason to buy that. But this is what humankind is all about. Why would you uh, drink a phenomenal uh, Bordeaux Chateau Lafitte if you can drink a glass of of water? Um, th th this is this is about quality of life. This is about lifestyle. Uh, it's, 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 the, it's the ultimate expression of French romanticism, right? It's all embodied in the watch. French romanticism or German um, or American style or whatever. 
it's it's lifestyle it's lifestyle and it has it is not a classic statement uh, in your maslow pyramid of a normal need you would have uh, otherwise with other products and um, and uh, i wonder how the car industry will evolve because what people loved in the car industry in the in the old days including myself was the sound of the engine was right. the smell was you know the whole um design of the engine today you have uh, an ipad on four wheels you don't have <laughs> the, you don't have the sound you don't have the smell you and tomorrow morning you will not even drive your car right it's a moving living room that's all it, this it's a portable it, living room still i think uh, when I look now that the German car industry woke up, I think they will be able to create, even with electric cars, they will uh, be able to create uh, dreams and stories yeah. through design, um, through performance, through luxury, uh, versus other companies which which were first in that field. But they reinvented themselves. For some reason, the the, the watch industry didn't have to reinvent themselves. The, just the function changed, uh, I would say, naturally from uh, an instrument for timing uh, or off timing to an instrument of pleasure. I'm going to change the topic back to creativity. And you've sort of dabbled in Hollywood. In fact, you helped produce a movie, a French movie. What do you admire about the, I'll call it the Hollywood business creative side because um, you, you, I, I, I see that you, you, you struggle a little bit, just like many other people in the watch industry, when it comes to embracing creativity. I'm guessing that you sort of see a lot of creativity being happening a lot in Hollywood. What do you admire about that, and what do you think that the watch industry can learn from that industry? So, so first of all, um, the Hollywood is by far not that professional than what we think, and. Um, <laughs> especially producers and all the backbone in terms of distribution, financing, etc. It's, it's very superficial. Um, I've tried hmm. to produce my movie in, in the US and it was nearly, it was nearly impossible uh, because you oh, cannot produce uh, independent movies anymore. You need to have you know, big, big properties, um, you know, like Marvel, like James Bond, like... Uh, but independent movies is, 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 is very, is very difficult to produce. And, uh, you have that, I would say creative, still that creative freedom, um, in, in, uh, in Europe, but you have to distinguish between production mm -hmm. and distribution and creativity. Of course, Hollywood is super creative, but here we're talking about directors. We're talking about script writers. Um, in a way, sometimes we're talking about smart um, uh, studios, but otherwise, it's um, it's not that. And the cin and cinema, as you know, is totally changing. Um, we went from small productions to huge productions. We went now from cinema to um, um, to streamers. So the whole the whole business totally changed, I would say, uh, two, two times over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, what I like, though, in that, and sorry to finish on that, is, is the storytelling, um, is, is a way 
for instance, one of the best movies I've I've seen lately is, is Nomadland, which got all the Oscars. Right. Um, and uh, it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal storytelling. It's beautiful. I can only recommend everybody to was was an, was a phenomenal actress uh, to watch that movie. It's 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 really beautiful. Um, and and this is what I admire. And this is my frustration because I will never be able to do this. It's it's a it's 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 incredible. So why is that? You say I'll never be able to, to do this. Why why is that? Because you need a certain um, genius uh, in that field. It's like with every. It's like anything else to uh, to make such a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful um, story. It's a very uh, it's a very unusual way how to film it, and and the director, which is a woman, um, uh, and and the actress uh, is is just something which I don't, which I know I cannot do. I can produce one day. I would like to direct a movie, but I, I don't think I would be able, never, ever to be uh, at that uh, at that level. Just have to realize that. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know your own limitations. Like you're yeah, a better critic than you'll ever be a practitioner. <laughs> yeah, or produ- producer. Yes, you can produce. You can smell. Um, you can probably smell. Okay, that could be great. So I'll produce it. But directing, it's a totally different story. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So in your time both at IWC and at Breitling, you spent um, a lot of your uh, marketing time working with celebrity ambassadors to great effect. You've been uh, amongst the most successful CEO when it comes to dealing with a, a large variety of celebrities. A lot of people have been curious about that. There's, of course, a sex appeal around celebrities, um, and especially in the luxury industry, it's sort of a big deal. What's it been like working with celebrities? What have you learned about it? Um, and, and how have you mastered the art of working with so many at once? Well, working with celebrities is the same thing than working with anybody else. Uh, you have very professional people, you have less professional people, you have committed people, you have less committed people. Uh, you have nice people, polite people. You have l- less nice and polite people. Um, so, but overall, in 90, 95% of the cases, I only had great, um, ex- I mean, only great experiences uh, with celebrities. They know, uh, obviously, when they sign with a brand that they have to do a job. And, um, and for, for some of them, like Brad Pitt, by the way, 
they are really into watches or they're, they, they were wearing our watches before we even signed with them. I think what is crucial for um, the relationship uh, with uh, top stars is that you as a CEO, you're involved. You cannot delegate this to your marketing team. You know, they want to feel uh, that they're treated uh, by the boss uh, in the right way. Right. Um, which in a way is much easier uh, if, if you're running a small watch company or if you're running a big automotive uh, multi-billion company because the CEO doesn't have the time I have to 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 make myself available and and sometimes it goes and and then they show commitment they stay much longer than what uh, is in the contract they do much more than what is described in the contract because everything is detailed in a contract and the problems are never the celebrities or very little and much more <laughs> the management or the lawyers uh, behind it. Um, right. But again, when you have that great relationship, then everything um, everything is quite easy. Does every watch brand need a celebrity ambassador? I mean, the success that you've had and, and some of the top name personalities that you've brought to the watch industry have translated into the message for a lot of watch brand managers that I'm just not going to be a serious watch brand until I have a celebrity ambassador. Now, it obviously works in a lot of instances, but does every brand need one? Yes or no? Uh, um, I, I would say that actually it's not the point. The point is how you use them. In my previous brand, um, the celebrities were not in the advertising campaign. What we did, we did uh, PR campaigns, photo shootings with Peter Lindbergh, etc., which is very different than having and running uh, a full-fledged advertising campaign with celebrities. Very different. Um, today, we have a mixed, uh, we have a mixed, um, I would say, structure at Brighton because we have only two cinema squads. So um, I would say a mixed one with Brad Pitt, Adam Driver, and, and Charlie Theron, and our Spotlight squad uh, with Yao Chen, with um, um, with Misty Copeland, who is a dancer, and and um, and Charlie Theron. So uh, and we have many other squads beside them. So it's it's a question how you you I would say you balance the use. Uh, of the celebrities in your overall campaign. Um, and uh, it it can help, especially in countries like China. Um, and in some other countries you have, especially when you're more mature, uh, you can you can um, 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 uh, work in a, in a different way. So it's really how you use them, how intensively you use them, more than should I use them or not? Because everybody somewhere is uh, and somehow is using celebrities. So it sounds like it's a powerful tool, of course, if you know how to use it. What are some do's and don'ts? What are some things that you should definitely do with your celebrities and some things that you should avoid to do? <laughs> you should avoid having, paying a celebrity uh, and having him on your ad and then uh, in, in private he's wearing another watch and everybody sees it because in social media everything is transparent and right. all these things are popping up immediately. No, I think uh, the, the the starting point is to choose the right people at the at the, at the beginning. Okay, who fits the brand? Who fits uh, that philosophy? Who fits the style? Uh, the also the aesthetic style of of the brand? 
Um, and then the second question is, okay, how can I, can I work with that person? I usually meet all of them before I have a discussion, we have a lunch, etc. And I try to understand, okay, um, what is it all about? Uh, because for most of them, they don't need our money, honestly. So for most of them, they do it because, you know, they like our image or um, they like what we're doing. It gives another angle to, to their public appearance. Uh, but the, the first thing is, okay, does this specific, specific person fit into your brand, into your communication, in the style, and in the image you're trying to, um, to express? So it's really hard to find the right personality. And there's probably more celebrities that want to be ambassadors to watch brands than there are positions for it, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, we approach every day <laughs> by, <laughs> uh, by, by managers, every day, every day. But uh, we're very happy with, with the ones we're working with. Yeah. And it's, um, look, it adds a wonderful flavor to what you do because, you know, I represent a sort of watch hobbyist community. We don't need the celebrities to like watches. It helps, but we don't need it. But then you have this entire other contingent of society, which is the mainstream. And sometimes without the celebrity involvement, there would be no attention on this category whatsoever. And so I think it's easy for the snobs to be like, you know, don't get celebrities in our hobby. But then to make this a viable like international business and part of the luxury industry, you got to connect it to the successful lifestyle, the sex appeal, looking good, the, the relevancy of culture, like you said. Like, this is an ongoing effort. And, um, you know, it does require, like you said, this sort of like, you know, finger on the pulse. How do you get that? Do you, do you read a lot? Do you watch a lot of something? Do you, have, do you read good reports? How are you absorbing uh, the a right amount of information to know what's going on in the world around you? Uh, interesting question. First of all, I have myself, um, I would say, a good social media feedback. I'm myself, <laughs> if you want, uh, an influencer, and I get direct uh, feedback on everything we are doing. I have myself... Uh, close to 48,000 followers. Ooh, look um, at you. Just, just on, on Instagram, but also Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, etc. And people are actually responding because they know that I'm the CEO. It's a private site. It's not a, it's, it's not a, it's not a brightening, um, it's not a brightening social media. I run it myself. I do my mistakes, my spelling mistakes, my English mistakes, etc. But people know that I actually read the stuff. I write it myself. I do my mistakes. And I respond. So this is my sounding board. Um, uh, I have another sounding board, which is more formal. Uh, we have influencers, we have customers, we have uh, um, Brightling Owner Club members, we have journalists, we have uh, retailers. And I have here a sounding board of 25 to 30 people. And we meet once a year. We discuss everything. We discuss products, co communication, etc. And this helps because it gives you another perspective um, of of uh, what you should do or should not do. I have even I'm, I have collectors. Uh, collectors are influencing me a lot. I mean, uh, uh, Fred Mandelbaum is is one of these guys who influenced right. the brand and the rebuild of the brand uh, strongly. Because as you know, when we took over the brand three four uh, years ago. Uh, we had two communities. We had the community of, of the recent past, of the brightening of the recent past, let's say the last 20 years. 
And then we had a community of the Brighton lovers of the 40s, 50s, and 60s with Fred, for instance. And what we try to do, what we're still trying and or what thankfully successfully did over the last years is, is, is building a bridge between um, the, the, the traditional Breitling lovers and, and I would say the more recent past Breitling lovers. So you need sounding boards, but uh, we are in a totally transparent world. You get immediate feedback. Um, um, when we launch a product, when you launch a campaign, I get within minutes feedback on my own uh, social media and, and you learn from it. So that's still very valuable to you. That's interesting. Um, would you say that that's a good suggestion for every CEO or do you have to sort of really love it and understand how to use it? Is that not maybe a strategy for everyone? Well, uh, first of all, the question is, are you allowed to do it? You know, when you're working for a corporation, it's much more difficult. I can, mm, you know, n- nobody cares what I'm saying. You know, I will not go to jail because I'm going, I'm going uh, through <laughs> forward, forward statements because I'm uh, publicly, uh, um, you know, in, in the stock market. So nobody cares. Uh, I can say what I want and it's a certain freedom. Some others cannot. And I understand that. And some, some brands have a total different policy, but you know, we like to be inclusive. We, we, we talk about inclusive luxury, casual luxury and casual luxury and, and sustainable luxury. And these are the three mantras we're working with. And inclusive means, uh, that also the CEO, uh, talks to, to, to the consumers directly and is listening to the consumer. But this is our, that's our strategy. That's our way of doing. And some other people, some other brands don't do it at all, where you have zero uh, impact, where people say, okay, the brand is at the center, we don't, uh, we don't want to have a face, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody, and both can be very successful, um, and everybody has his, its own strategy. I like to have the direct contact. It's part of our culture. And, um, and I think it, it dramatically helps to improve what we're doing. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, speaking of expectations, you know, uh, Breitling was was purchased by a family, uh, by um, CVC, I believe it's called, um, which private th- equity, private equity, and it's it's my understanding their only watch brand acquisition, right? Uh, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And you know, within this, we're, we're talking about the context right now that these sort of publicly traded entities like the the, the Richemonts and the LVMHs and the Swatch groups of the world. They're under a lot of pressure right now. It's challenging. So the question is, what are some of the expectations that the private equity group has of a watch brand? It, it seems to me that you have to really understand the business to know what to expect and that there sometimes can be situations with uh, poor expectations. Caring, for example, as you know, uh, said that they were, I guess, willing to take offers on Ulysses Nardin, Gerard Perigo. That's sort of an admit, admittal that that the sort of corporate structure doesn't necessarily work for watches. So, so as in it, so as a private equity investor, what are their expectations exactly? They want to be very successful. I mean, that's a expectation. Otherwise, they wouldn't have invested so much money. Okay. But um, uh, and and you know, private equity essence is to you know to keep a company for a certain period of time, and then sell it uh, to a strategic investor, for instance. Or to to uh, uh, make an IPO, right? Right. The business model. Okay. So uh, what they're trying to do is trying to buy uh, successful companies and to make them even more successful. 
in in um, yeah in, in in having the right management in, in investing the right way uh, and and to, to grow the business. This is what what these these people are doing brilliantly uh, for most of them. So uh, they they bought Brightling. They had the opportunity to to buy Brightling. Um, and to put together a new management team, um, and uh, and and then uh, because we can be shareholders, uh, you, you you can quickly get to the right people to put the right team together, which potentially uh, will be successful, and that's that the way of doing. So, what what are some of the differences between? the communication and the relationship with um, the people at the private equity firm in, in sort of contrast to the, the, the brands and, and the, the Richemont board. I'm just curious how those sort of differ. Difficult question because I don't want to criticize um, anybody, um, but indeed it is, very di- it is very different because on one side, a group, um, has different objectives than than, uh, than private equity. Uh, a group doesn't run a brand in a way to sell it a little later. They they, they run a brand because they want to they want to they keep it right in ninety nine percent of the cases, except a couple of exceptions. And and you've mentioned one earlier. Um, in a in a group in a luxury group, you have many people involved because. They they know the business, have been in the business, uh, etc. When you are in private equity, these are financial um, financial people. Uh, they have a great business sense. They're very smart people, by the way. Uh, they have uh, great benchmarks. They have great experiences from other uh, industries, which also can be extremely helpful. Um, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't comment my products, or they wouldn't comment my advertising. Here we're totally free. I mean, we do. This is why they pay us, right? Is to do it ourselves. Right. It's not their job. In 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 uh, in uh, when you're part of a, of a corporation, you have many influences. You have many um, uh, interactions with the management uh, because yes, there's that experience for the good or the or for the bad. Um, and and you have that exchange of opinions, which obviously we don't have when you own by private equity. What they're looking is your financial performance. Uh, but um, I must say that uh, I haven't experienced any limitation whatsoever in terms of investments, in terms of uh, in terms of strategic uh, direction. You share you share, of course, your your vision. And and your vis-a-vis or the, your board members are reacting like consumers, but at the end of the day, you have to to deliver. That's the point. You have you have to deliver, and um, and uh, you have to deliver quickly. So it's it's less about politics and it's more about performance. It sounds like it's 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 hundred percent performance. It's uh, zero politics. Hundred percent performance. That must be really refreshing in some ways. No, I love it. I mean, <laughs> I always said, I, I said in several interviews, my only regret uh, with private equity is that I haven't done it earlier. <laughs> so, um, but you need to have the right mentality. Huh? You, you need to survive private equity because it's much tougher than in a group. You have to be super um, efficient and super performing because otherwise, you know, you're out very quickly. 
Um, so there's a much higher and much, you know, there's much higher uh, pressure, much right. tougher uh, environment because you have only a couple of years to be, uh, you know, to turn a company uh, into an even more successful company. And it's, it's very tough. Huh? It's very tough. Uh, and you, you, you need to survive this, but it's for us. I mean, thank God we have been since the beginning successful. Uh, and I haven't uh, yet experienced, um, uh, difficulties with, with my investors because we're delivering. I want to ask you a question about, you know, opportunities that could come about from something, you know, as tragic as the pandemic. And one of them is just sort of the the ability to get more of the share of voice and the share of the market. So much of the competition has been relatively stagnant compared to Breitling. Breitling has been, you know, um, incredibly resilient and and the level of activity you've done, despite the fact that events have been limited, is um, it's really impressive and commendable. Um, but what are some of the things that that you feel, you know, you 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 got that maybe you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Like if it was a normal time, would you achieve the same success? Or given the sort of pandemic's um, lack of as much competition in the marketing space, or maybe with retailers, were you able to do more faster because of, um, uh, like I said, the sort of the, the lack of as much competition in the marketplace? So first of all, um, we were always optimistic and um, we were always building on on the future so we had a couple of weeks of doubts at the beginning of the pandemic because we had to close the manufacturing center we had to ensure cash flow etc etc so that was the beginning i would say but very quickly we said okay that will end someday so let's continue to launch products let's use that opportunity to be top of mind um, um, especially in, in in social media we launched uh, last year in April, the Economat, which is a key product today, which is the second largest line today, at the at, at, at the at the top of the pandemic, um, and and uh, we were always present, interacting with our retailers. I spend uh, hours and hours in Zoom meetings all around with 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 all partners all around the world. Um, uh, because you know that uh, after a difficult period of time, there will be a, re a reopening. And, and thank God, China reopens very quickly. The USA were never really closed. So we had a totally different strategy than many other brands, meaning we were active, we were dynamic, we wanted to share what we're doing with, uh, with our watchmakers. And uh, this was the right strategy because when the market reopened, Boom, we saw our sales dramatically uh, increasing. My frustration is not the performance uh, of last year, where in some major countries we were closed for six, seven months. My frustration is what we could have achieved in absolute terms without the pandemic uh, because of our great products. Yeah, of course. Now, so many people in the watch industry have said that the pandemic has accelerated the the digital revolution, evolution, whatnot, and e-commerce is something that a lot of brands have really heavily started to invest in, whereas many of them are sort of dabbling in. What did you learn about the realities of e-commerce or wristwatch e-commerce over the pandemic that you just didn't know before? 
So we have, when you talk about digital transformation, you, we have to distinguish between social media and, and e-com. Sure. So in, indeed, um, people today, uh, they get the information from social media. 70% of the decision process is made through social media, uh, through blogs, through presentations, YouTube, what have you. Okay. Um, doesn't mean that 70% of the purchases are e-com purchases. Right. Uh, when you talk to CEOs in the luxury industry, they will say, okay, we doubled from five to 10, like Breitling, for instance, and we might reach 15% in e-com um, because um, the consumers, and you can read and go through any study, um, still want the physical experience of, of flagship uh, stores uh, at your retailer. So yes, you will have an increased share of e-com sales, which is great, but I don't think it will be excessive. People, it's, it's a very tactile product. It's a very emotional product and you want to touch it. You want to try it. You want to interact with the, with the, with the stuff, even though you made up your mind through digital, uh, I would say digital communication. Um, and, and therefore, uh, again, you have to distinguish between e-com and I would say everything you're doing through digital uh, activation of or communication or blockchain or what what have you. All this is part of the digital transformation, but it's not only e-com. So let me ask you a related question. Um, I think that in the near future, we're going to have more and more third-party authorized dealers online that are going to specialize in selling a few different brands and are going to sort of market and, and, and sell. And they're going to be just like any other retailer, just a digital one. What makes up the perfect third-party authorized dealer that's, who, that's, a, that's a digital commerce website, in your opinion? Um, I'm not sure that we will have um, retailers, classic retailers, um, or many classic... I mean, you have pure players like Ux, Netaporte, etc. Um, but if, if you look at it, you, you might have, I don't know, five or six on a worldwide level, whilst we have 1,500 physical stores, mm. which are them also having their e-com, right? Yeah. Uh, so for most of our, um, I would say, multi-channel relationship, uh, ret retailers will still be um, in the center. And 60-70% um, of them have, of course, beside the physical store, they have their own e-com. But pure players, only e-com, they're very few, okay, very few. And I don't see that growing uh, because, as I said, uh, consumers still want that physical experience. But having the multi-channel approach as we have with our own boutiques, with external boutiques, with e-com, and with our retail network having themselves the e-com, I think that is the right uh, approach to have. I guess I'm just curious, you know, your overall opinion about how the, the messy internet, you know, marketplace for watches is going to be cleaned up. Because I see a lot of unhealthy areas related to just a sort of lack of formality of distribution and just sort of a lot of what I yeah. call Wild West syndrome. And I want things to become just sustainable and clear and how everyone understands it. There's no like, there's no like, a model that you can build upon to just be like, I'm going to set up a website and sell watches. Like everyone has to have some type of scheme or hustle or something like that. It's very, very difficult, which is bad for business. So I'm wondering, 
you know, what steps the industry is taking yeah. to get some type of sustainability. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Uh, the watch market is always behind 10, 20 years behind everything, any other industry. And that's super conservative. But today, I would say that the market is getting structured. You have to distinguish between, and the mass is uh, is because of the different type of products. So uh, let me try to be, uh, to segment the whole situation. So you have vintage watches, which are sold, uh, you know, uh, or auctioned through Christie's, Sotheby's, uh, or on on a couple of specialized uh, watch sites. Then you have uh, what we call the the certified pre-owned, which is more and more structured. And, and supported by the brands, meaning you have you might have trade-ins. So we take back watches and we give you a new watch and then we sell that watch with a corporate uh, guarantee through our site or our stores um, or through our factory outlets. So these are the certified pre-owned watches. And then you have the new watches and these new watches uh, are sold through our e-com or the e-com of our retailers or pure players. But I would say that, thank God, uh, it's much less messy than it was before. I think the, the 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 job of the watch industry is to support the retailer to uh, take back the old stock and the unsold stock. And I'm, I'm not talking about vintage watches. I'm talking about unsold stock. And if the industry is doing this, the market will be much less messy. and uh, But this is happening. It's actually happening. And uh, and again, you know, with the, uh, with the blockchain, you will have traceability and transparency. And, and therefore, I'm quite confident that this, this mess we have, or we had, I would say, five or 10 years ago, will, 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 uh, will, be, will disappear over the next couple of years, definitely. I think it's very interesting that you still believe that the majority of transactions are going to happen in stores. I, I'm not saying I disagree. Um, I just see stakeholders all over the place betting on all different areas, from from retail to websites, direct to consumer, which I'm not a big fan of. I don't see a lot of sustainability there. I see those models fizzles out. Um, people are are engaged in a lot of experimentation. But the problem is, is as you know, most of the constituents in the industry are very conservative. So. It, with all this experimentation, yeah, but I disagree. I, I disagree because disagree? the market leaders, the market leaders, are not doing what you're saying. No, take the two market leaders. Okay, so Ro- Rolex is not selling, only selling traditionally. That's what you're saying. Yeah, but I mean, what's the percentage of the market they're controlling? I, well, I'm saying is people are trying all sorts of things. Well, follow the leader. This is what I'm saying. I agree with you. I agree with you. I, I Look, I always think that, you know, for example, right now we have this twisted concept that, that to get the deal you go online and to pay full price you go in person, that doesn't make any sense. The most convenient approach should be the full price approach. And if you want to get a deal, it should be discreet with a friend you have selling it somewhere. You know what I mean? Okay, what? Okay, okay. That's another debate. So let me repeat. First of all, the industry will be multi-channel, right? Ecom physical stores on boutiques, number one. Yeah. Uh, number two, we have to distinguish between vintage watches, pre-owned watches, and new watches. And number three, there will be more offering, there will be more offerings for consumers to attract them on your site without you giving them discounts. 
For instance, we just launched Brightling Select in the US as a test where we offer three watches during a year. You can choose and, and try on these watches during a year. And after one year and after uh, you, you pay your monthly fees, etc., you can buy one of these three watches or one of the watches of that pool of these Brightling Select. But that's totally different because what you do here, you respond to a need of a consumer who might have the money, but who might not have decided what he actually wants uh, or that person she or he wants to have on uh, on his or her wrist. So that's very different. And Porsche is doing this and Ralph Lauren is doing this. So here, what you will see in future are offerings, online offerings, which you have since many years in other industries. But it's another issue. I, I actually think it was um, a, a really kind of brilliant thing you did with the Breitling Select. I, I, I'm sure that A, you got a lot of flack for it. B, uh, you didn't anticipate how successful it was going to be. Like I, I'm get, My guess is it was really successful, but people gave you a lot of slack for it. Uh, it is successful. And um, <laughs> the, the, the reality is that the retailers want to do it now uh, themselves, um, which is more costly for them because we can do it, you know, we, we right. have... Uh, uh, you know, we, we can afford a pool of watches to be part of that Brightling Select. Uh, but again, in any other industry, you would, you would find these kind of offerings in the, in the sunglass industry, in the fashion industry, in the car industry. You have these offerings. You have people who want to try, really try before buying it. I mean, you have people who don't want to own luxury and who want to, uh, experience luxury, and these offerings will will also emerge, uh, like in any other industry. So it's shocking in a way for the luxury, a hard good luxury industry, but it's uh, it's it's normal in any other, uh, in particular, soft uh, luxury industry. I think the experimentation is fantastic, and uh, George, I just love the the sort of approach you take to everything. We're just about out of time. I'm gonna ask one more quick question, then I will. Uh, anticipate asking you again to come back on the show. But this is the question. Once the world starts to open up for events again, um, do you have a bunch of plans? You're going to start getting back on the road right away. I know you've been on the road to a degree. Um, or do you sort of want to be conservative about it, see how things pan out, and be a little bit more slow uh, into going into events? I'm just curious uh, what your plans are. You mean me personally or as a brand? Um, I guess both. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to be traveling with the brand. Um, so personally, as a CEO, I will, uh, I will be in the first planes flying <laughs> wherever you, you, you know, these planes will take me to the U S to Japan, to China, because I haven't been in the markets for uh, over a year now. So I will be first row, first plane, uh, everywhere. Now, in terms of events, uh, first of all, uh, I don't think there will be the same type of events after COVID than before COVID uh, because the society change, expectations are different and you have to do it in a different way anyhow. Um, and second, you have to indeed ask, wait until you, you, you can do bigger events again, considering the, uh, the, the health situation. But the world is different and I'm 100% convinced that what we have been doing uh, before the pandemic, um, uh, we cannot do it exactly in the same way after the pandemic. Um, yeah, because the society changed. 
during our call, I actually changed the watch on my wrist. Now I'm wearing one of the chronomats, and I, I'm so in love with this bracelet. And I was wearing it when you were talking about beauty. And that's sort of what I want to remind everyone is that the the, the last crop of, of Breitling watches in the last few years have been really imbued with beauty. They're all very nice looking watches, um, lots of experimentation, lots of great themes. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Kern, for, for coming aboard and chatting about um, your experience uh, being CEO of Breitling. We'll have to have you back soon on Superlative. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Arel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? <laughs> 